Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, our Lord. The word of the Lord. Well, as uh, Pastor Dave mentioned, we are starting a new series. It's called Established in the Truth, and it's from the second letter of Peter. We worked through the first letter of Peter over the, uh, the months, couple of months before Advent in the fall, and so we're kind of continuing that and going to cover Second Peter uh, during the next seven weeks or so. Now, the apostle, same person writing, the apostle Peter, he writes this letter shortly before he is martyred in Rome, we think. Um, and this is sort of his last words to his readers, to his churches that he's had influence over. And the message that comes through this letter, and especially if you just sit down and read the whole thing, and it's very short, so you can easily do that, you will pick up on certain themes, but the main theme that comes through is this, is this desire of the apostle for his readers to keep growing in Christ, to keep growing. Now, of course, he knows that healthy spiritual growth is only possible in accordance with the knowledge of God's Word, in accordance with the truth, which is why he trusts that his readers are established in the truth. There's rootedness in God's Word and the revealed truth of God. And as he talks about the beauty and the power of God's Word, he has to confront false teachers and false teachings because they prevent us from from growing. And so he does so throughout the letter and reminds us of the truth, even as he confronts falsehood. So that's the letter. That's the general kind of overview very briefly. But we'll work through it, and we'll find many, many very applicable things in this letter to us today. So this morning, I'm just going to look at the first two verses of the letter, as Jillian read for us. It's easily overlooked as just a greeting, but as you know, hopefully by now, I love to preach from greetings of the New Testament letters. That's enough for me. One or two verses is plenty uh, for me to meditate, and it's, it's easy to overlook these introductions to letters as something that just comes before the important things. But very often in those greetings, we find the themes and the tone of the letter already established. And so we see it here. Peter presents this letter as God's words to all Christians. He expands it. He's not just talking to his readers, but to all Christians. These words are for us. And he gives us a framework, even in these short two verses, he gives us a framework for our own spiritual growth. So we're going to start here, and we're going to get the framework, and then as we work through uh, the verses following, we will find many very specific applications all working from the same framework of, of Christian life. So I'd like us to consider three things today. Uh, one, what we already have. Two, how we can grow. And finally, whom we know. So what we have, how we grow, and whom we know. Okay, so look at verse 1 of the letter, the first chapter. Peter is writing this letter to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So every Christian 
including you and even me, has received something from the Lord. In fact, that is how one becomes a Christian, is by receiving a gift from Him. We have obtained a faith by the righteousness of Christ. We have received something. That word obtain actually means to choose by lot, to trust either a random decision, as some people think of it, or as divine will, something happening in your life. So when you cast lots, when you roll the dice, you're not in control of it, as much as a person that gambling in a casino may think they are. <laughs> no control over it, over it. And so Peter's using this word that we have obtained, meaning that something was done for us, it was decided for us, it was given to us as a gift. And so Peter defines a Christian as one who has received a gift from God, who has obtained something from God. And that gift is our faith which unites us to Christ and applies what is His to us. We have obtained a faith by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now notice that Jesus is described as our God and Savior. This is one of the strongest affirmations of Christ's deity in the New Testament, and there are plenty. This is one of the strongest ones. Jesus is God, and He saves us by giving us His righteousness as a gift. Now, what do we mean by righteousness? Oh, let's use other words. Perfection, moral consistency, sinlessness, flawlessness, purity. God is righteous in a sense that there's nothing bad, nothing dark, nothing wrong in Him, nothing sinful in Him. God has the highest standards of personal character and moral achievement, and He perfectly meets His own expectations. That's righteousness. That's who God is. That's, he is righteous. He is like that. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing lacking in Him. Now, we, on the other hand, do not measure up to God's standards. I mean, we don't even measure up to our own standards. How's everybody doing with New Year's resolutions? A week into it. How about the resolutions that you should have made and you didn't make because you knew you were gonna keep, weren't going to keep them anyway, right? Even when we set our own standards, we, we can't meet them. It's, it's an amazing thing. As, much, as proud as we are and as self-assured and self-sufficient that we think, we cannot even meet our own standards. We are unrighteous by that definition. Or to use a biblical word, we are sinful. And we live in anticipation of judgment. We should. We must be kept accountable for all the ways that we fall short of what we are supposed to be. And there's no hope for us to become righteous on our own. I've thought about this, and I've thought, okay, so if I wanted to become righteous, if I really wanted to become righteous, how can I undo all the wrong that I've already done? How can I fix it? How can I reverse what I've already done wrong? And then how can I change my desires for wrong things that I have right now? How can I change my own heart that desires to do things that are wrong? And then how can I not only avoid what is wrong, 
but do everything that is right. Because righteousness isn't about just about avoiding sin, but it's also about doing things that are right. Feeling feelings that are right, making plans that are right, having thoughts that are right. How can I do that? I can't. If I'm honest with myself, if I break through my pride and my self-sufficiency, I, I can't do that. But Jesus, who is our God and our Savior, comes to save us. And so He comes to live the human life in righteousness. God comes to live our life the way it's supposed to be lived. And so when Jesus lived, He met all God's expectations for human beings in His own life. He actually didn't do anything wrong, and He actually did everything right. And His desires perfectly matched God's expectations. And what He thought and what He felt and what He planned, all His ambitions, everything that was in Him was right. There was no darkness in Him. There was nothing wrong. It's impossible for me to imagine that in a human being. And yet it was all true of Christ. As a human being, Jesus lived a righteous life. And then in his, in his death, he was kept accountable for all the failures of people before God. So not only did he live actively righteous life in our place, in my place, in your place, but he also was kept accountable in our place for all my and your failures before God. And so when Jesus rose from the dead, he offered his righteousness, this righteousness of a perfect life, the righteousness of having been kept accountable and judged for our sins. He offered it to us as a gift. And faith is simply receiving that, receiving the gift of his righteousness. It's accepting that Jesus lived and died in my place. He became what I am, a sinner, so that I can become what he is, righteous. You see, he was treated as a sinner, even though he wasn't a sinner, so that I can be righteous, even though I am not righteous. Outside of Christ, I am what I am, a sinner under the condemnation of God. That is right, it's just, it's fair, it's real. But united to Christ by faith, I am what He is, accepted by God as a righteous person. This is the center of the Christian teaching. This is the core of what we believe. This is the main thing that the Bible teaches. And Peter, this wise old apostle at the end of his life, preparing for his own martyrdom, he can't even get through the greeting without highlighting it. As in many of the letters in the New Testament, these writers, they can't get to the main part of the letter. They don't wait to tell you what the most important thing is. They can't wait. And so Peter is already in the greeting, is laying out the gospel framework. He's already telling you what is most important, that Jesus came so you could have his righteousness and be accepted with God. And so a Christian is a person who has been given and has accepted God's gift of righteousness through faith in Christ. That is what a Christian is. Whatever other definition you have, those are not the right definitions. The biblical definition of a Christian is someone who has been given and who has accepted the gift of 
God's own righteousness in Christ through faith. A Christian is a person who has Christ's righteousness, who actually is in possession of Christ's own righteousness by grace. Are you a Christian? By this biblical definition, are you a Christian? There's an old example of that. An old preacher would use this test to see if people really understand this or not. He would ask them, are you a Christian? And if a person said, well, pastor, I'm trying. He said, well, then you don't understand. You don't understand what what a Christian is. A Christian is somebody who's accepted the gift, who's accepted the gift of righteousness and is presented as righteous before God because of Jesus and because of what Jesus has done in our place. So Peter shows us that Christ's righteousness is a gift. And then he says to his readers that they have obtained and we have obtained a faith, get this, of equal standing with ours. Peter the apostle and his fellow, his colleagues, his fellow ministers have the same faith, faith of the same equal standing, the same value as any one of us does today. Peter says, Peter, this apostle of Jesus Christ, one of the 12 apostles, right? One of the three disciples in the inner circle of the Lord Jesus, the rock of the church, the Pentecost preacher, the leader who unlocked the Gentile world for the gospel, the person about to give his life for Christ, says that his reader's faith and our faith is of equal standing with his. Your faith and my faith, no matter how feeble or fragile it is, is of equal value than the faith of any apostle or martyr or prophet in the Bible. You can think of the most faithful Christian You can think of the most courageous Christian. You can think of somebody who has made the greatest sacrifice for Christ, who has remained steadfast in the greatest suffering. And Peter says that your faith is of equal standing and of equal value as that person's faith. Because what Peter means is that every Christian possesses the same righteousness of Christ. It's not the strength of our faith, which may vary from person to person, from day to day. But it's the very presence of our faith that unites us to Christ. And so, in this way, every genuine Christian has equal standing before God. Every Christian is equally accepted with God because the basis of our acceptance is not our faith, actually but it's the righteousness of Christ. So if I've got the righteousness of Christ, which is a gift, if I have it, my faith is of equal standing than any other Christian through the ages, in the Bible, in church history, anybody I know. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones told this story about he was on vacation and he met a collector as he told the story of the famous Swansea China. Now, I was not aware of the fame of Swansea China, but I looked it up. Apparently, there was a company in Wales that produced this beautiful porcelain China, 
from 1814 to 1822. So only between those two dates, 1814 to 1822, they produced this now famous China. And all the surviving pieces now are carefully cataloged, and everybody knows who has what, because there's not that much of it left. And so when Lloyd-Jones went on vacation and he met this collector, the collector not only showed him the pieces that he had, very proudly displaying them, but also a book that had the name of every other collector, everybody who owned this particular rare china. Among the names in the book was Her Majesty the Queen. She had some pieces as well as many people whose names never appeared in any other book and who otherwise lived unremarkable lives. And yet all the people in that book had equal standing as those who have obtained the rare Swansea porcelain. It didn't matter if you were a queen or if you were royal, if you were wealthy or not. If you had a piece of that china, you had equal standing and your name was in that book. So if you are a Christian, if you've received the gift of Christ's righteousness by faith, your name is in the book of life, along with all the other names. But all the other names have equal standing before God, just as you do, because all of us make it into the book because of the righteousness of Christ given to us as a gift. Now, your failures may be greater than those of others. Your struggles may be more painful. Your reputation may be ruined. But you are not judged on your own righteousness. You are accepted with God because of the righteousness of Christ given to you as a gift. You've obtained it as a gift from God. It is something that you have been given by God and it is something that you have, that you possess. It is something that is yours, or as Paul put it in Ephesians 2, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Now, this is how Peter starts the letter. He wants us to be rooted in that because this is the gospel, and this shapes how we see the world, how we see ourselves. But now look at verse 2. We're developing the framework of the Christian life and the Christian, Christian growth. In verse 2, he says, in a fairly typical wish that you may find in the opening of the letter, but he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. He prays that his readers would have more grace and more peace, that grace and peace would increase in their lives and grow. <laughs> well, if you're a careful, careful reader, I mean, you have to stop here and say, okay, but if I understood the first verse correctly, I already have all the grace and all the peace because I have the righteousness of Christ. I've been given that gift. I, my faith is of equal standing with anyone else. Hasn't he just said that all believers have already obtained it? We've received it already? Do not all Christians already have grace since our salvation is a gift? Isn't that what grace means? Do not all Christians already have peace since we have been reconciled with God based on the righteousness of Christ? Now, what else can we gain? I have the righteousness of Christ. What else can I get? 
What more can I get than his righteousness? What, what is there left to get? How can we grow in grace and peace? But Peter, because he puts these two ideas side by side in the very greeting of the letter, he doesn't see them as contradictory. He both assures us that our standing with God is based on our having obtained Christ's righteousness as a gift. He assures us of that. And he also expects us to grow in the grace and peace of Christ. He doesn't see a problem here. He says, you have obtained righteousness of Christ as a gift, and now may the grace and peace of Christ be multiplied in your life. Now, we have to understand both, and we have to put them together, and we have to understand how they fit together. But before I do that, let me show you the dangers of separating those two. Okay? So let's say there's a Christian who trusts in the righteousness of Christ. They got verse 1, right? I've obtained the gift of righteousness from Christ. They trust it. But they don't feel the need to grow. They don't need to feel... They don't, they don't feel the need for grace and peace to grow and multiply and increase in their lives. This kind of Christian can easily become so complacent as to become self-righteous. Now, I said something that is paradoxical because this is a person who trusts that the very righteousness they possess comes from God as a gift. And yet, I will tell you that this is a way towards self-righteousness. Because if this is how self-righteousness works. There's two components to that. You need to feel absolutely confident that you are accepted with God. That's number one. That you are special and that God loves you and accepts you. And you need to forget or ignore or pretend that you are a sinner. If you put those two things together, the outcome of that is self-righteousness. So if I am confident that God loves me and accepts me, and I don't think I'm all that bad, do you think I'm not going to look down on other people? Don't you think I'm going to feel special? Don't you think I'm going to start feeling like, well, of course God loves me. Of course he does. Look at me. That's self-righteousness, isn't it? So even a person who theologically may affirm that their righteousness comes from God through Christ, when they're leaning only towards that and they feel no need to grow or change, I think there's a pretty good chance that they will become self-righteous. Does that describe you? Is that how you live? You are so confident that Christ's righteousness covers you as you should be. Absolutely you should be. But you feel no need to grow or change that you now think of yourself as somebody who deserves that gift. Well, of course God gave me that gift. That's me. Of course he does. Now, let's look at it from the other side. Let's say a Christian is, is really trying to grow, trying to change, but does not trust that they are already accepted by God based on what Christ has done for them. So it's the opposite, right? It's a person who's growing, they're changing, they're working hard, but they don't believe that God already accepts them on the, based on the righteousness of Christ alone. Now, this kind of Christian can become so insecure in their relationship with God, as to live shaped by guilt and condemnation. 
So yes, they're working. Yes, they're changing. Yes, they're trying. Yes, they're growing. But they're doing all, that, all of that not out of peace and grace, but out of insecurity. They're restless. They're earning. They want more of God, and they know that they have to do good things for God to love them. And so they're guilty, condemned, trying to move away from this, this feeling of condemnation. Does that describe you? Maybe. So we see the two sides, right? The assurance of being accepted by God through the righteousness of Christ and the desire to grow and the exhortation to grow and change. Now, how do we put it together? Now, Peter gives us this, this picture that includes both of those pieces. And this is the biblical teaching that pushes on the tendency towards self-righteousness and our tendency toward guilt. It actually, if you put those two together and you work it into your life, it'll fight both the rejection of the law and living by the law, both the license and legalism. So let me try to put this together. Jerry Bridges and Bob Bevington wrote a very helpful little book. It's a little book. It's a quick read called The Bookends of the Christian Life. The Bookends of the Christian Life. So they imagine the Christian life as a bunch of books. So imagine all the different parts of your life as separate books. You have church, Bible study, prayer, right? Those are the Christian things. But of course, you also have lots of other books from your life, like work and parenting and doing laundry and grocery shopping, all those books, okay? That's your life. And we're trying to keep all these books on the shelf. We're pulling different books out. We're replacing them. We're rearranging them. And because there are no bookends on the shelf, keeping these books upright, these books topple and fall. Some fall off the shelf and never get reshelved again. Some get put, put back upside down. You're constantly adjusting and worried whether it's going to all be kept in order. And so Bridges and Bevington propose that we need two sturdy bookends to keep our Christian life rightly balanced and ordered. And this is what they say. When we become united to Christ by faith, God places a set of bookends on the bookshelf of our lives. One bookend is the righteousness of Christ. The other is the power of the Holy Spirit. Though they're provided by God, it's our responsibility to lean our books on them, relying on them to support, stabilize, and secure all our books, everything we do. I find this metaphor very helpful. Both assurance of our salvation by grace alone, that's your one bookend, and our growth in that grace by the power of the Holy Spirit, that's the other one, but both are necessary for a healthy Christian life. We need to lean on both bookends to keep all the aspects of our lives stable in their respective spaces. Bridges and Bevington described the righteousness of Christ bookend as God's work for us, something that God has done for us. And the other bookend, the power of the Holy Spirit, as God's work in us. So you have God's work for us on the one side of the bookshelf and God's work in us on the other side. And we're leaning on both and we're finding stability and order and balance by leaning on both what God has done for us and what God is doing in us. And so we grow because of what God has done for us in Christ. And we grow 
as God is working in us by the power of his Holy Spirit. Now let me put it this way. What God has done for us, he wants to do in us. What God has already done for you in Christ, he means to do in you through the work of his Holy Spirit. The more you realize what he has done for you in Christ, the more you want to change and reflect that work in you, in your life, today, as you go grocery shopping, and as you pray. The grace and peace that are yours by grace as a gift. Grace and peace have been given to you as a gift through Christ. They will be multiplied in your life through the work of the Holy Spirit. While these realities, the assurance of being with God and accepted with God because of what Christ has done for you, and the motivation to grow and change to reflect it, even though they are separate realities, they're distinct, they're not disconnected. They work together, and you cannot have one without the other. Now, as we study 2 Peter, we'll explore that connection more. And we'll talk more in greater detail about the pattern of Christian growth and how the assurance coming from the truth of God's Word and our experience of the truth, our growing in the truth, actually work together. We'll explore that, but for now, let me introduce you to the last piece of this picture from Peter's greeting as we conclude. Peter says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. We grow based on the gift of Christ's righteousness and increasing in our experience of His grace and peace. But we do that in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. It is our knowledge of God that allows us to grow. Now, of course, that knowledge of God comes through Christ. He is the channel through which we understand who God is and know God personally. John 1.18, speaking about Jesus, says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. No one has seen God, but when Jesus came, He made God known. So if you know Jesus, you know God. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So we grow as we know God through Christ. Our growth depends on our knowledge. How we grow depends on whom we know. The more we know Jesus, the more we will grow. The more we will lean on the two bookends the more we will find stability and order for all the books on the shelf. But what kind of knowledge of God through Christ does Peter have in mind? Now, in the introduction to Knowing God by J.A. Packer, which is a book we're reading in, in our discipleship group, um, there, there's a great illustration that he starts the book with to kind of explain what he means by knowing God and what he hopes that readers would get from this book. He uses this illustration of people sitting on the high front balcony of a house somewhere in Spain, probably, and watching travelers go by on the road below. 
The onlookers may overhear or even engage in conversation with the travelers. They may share information about the area. They may, may answer questions. They can talk about potential dangers along the route and points of interest to stop at. But there's a big difference between the, as he calls them, balconiers and the travelers. Those who are on the balcony looking down and simply are engaging in theoretical conversation, and those who are actually walking the path. For the onlookers, the knowledge of the journey is purely theoretical and in some ways, in many ways, irrelevant. It doesn't affect their life. But for the travelers, the knowledge of the journey is practical and critical. Packer follows the illustration with this remark. The ignorance of God, ignorance both of His ways and of the practice of communion with Him, lies at the root of much of the church's weaknesses today. The ignorance of God, the ignorance of His ways, what He is like, what's important to Him, what kind of nature and character he has, and the ignorance of the practice of communion with him, that experiential relational knowledge, Packer says, lies at the root of much of the church's weaknesses today. If we look at the church today and we say, why aren't people growing, right? Why aren't Christians growing spiritually? And a case could be made that on the whole, the church is not doing all that well, the large evangelical church. And then we ask, why is that? And Packer's answer, I think, holds true. That is because we don't know God. We don't know what He is like, and we don't know Him as a person. Because if you know Him, you grow. That's what Peter is saying. Grace and peace will be multiplied in your life if you know Him, as you know Him, as you grow in your knowledge of Him, both the facts about God and God himself. Letter, the second letter that Peter writes, and he sets it up this way, will develop these themes, the themes of knowledge about God and knowledge of God. But he wants to put it together right here, right away, that for us to grow, we need the knowledge about God and knowledge of God, the revealed truth and the experiential, relational truth of God. Only by following Jesus as his, as his disciples can we know God. You cannot stay just a Christian balconier. You cannot stay by just knowing facts about God. Now that's important, but that's not enough. You also need to know Him. Consider what happens then when we pursue our relationship with Jesus based on the truth about Him. What happens is that grace and peace are multiplied. They increase. You get more grace and you get more peace. The more we know Him, the more confident we become in His care. The more we know Him, the more secure we feel in His love. The more we know Him, the more we trust that His righteousness has actually been applied to me and I have been justified before God. The more we know Him, the more we are grateful 
to Him. The more we know Him, the more we are in awe of Him for what He has done for us. It's one thing to hear about the cross for the first time, but it's another thing to meditate on the cross over the years of your Christian walk. The more we know Him, the more we find His grace sufficient. That's how grace multiplies. The more we know Him, the more we experience His peace that surpasses our understanding. Yes, you start with an understanding of peace, but the more you know Him, the more you realize that it's greater than you understood. The more we know Him, the closer we get to the source of all grace and peace. And so you're able to draw from it. You're able to draw mercy and grace in your time of need, in abundance. The more we know Him, the lower our tolerance for sin becomes. The more you know Him, the harder it is to sin. The more we know Him, the more frequent our victories and temptation become. The more we know Him, the more we want to honor Him in every part of our lives, every book on the shelf. The more we know Him, the more we love Him. You cannot not love God as you get to know Him. You can hate an idea of God. You can hate a misperception of God, but you cannot hate God if you know Him. If you've been given His grace and peace and you are in relationship with Him, you cannot but love Him. The more we know Him, the more we become like Him. The righteousness of Jesus that's been given to you as a gift now works itself out and you become like Jesus in practice. The more we know Him, the more grace and peace we can now extend to other people. As we draw from the fountain of grace and peace, it flows from us and overflows into other people's lives. So I'll finish with this challenge. Do you know him? Have you obtained faith in his righteousness? Are you growing in grace and in peace?